The beloved Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's remind ourselves where Colossae was. It's one of the ancient biblical cities that's not been excavated yet. Other important ones nearby have been Laodicea, Hierapolis. Uh, Colossae has not, but we know where it was. Uh, if one began with the important port city of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, not on the European side near Istanbul, but on the Asian side near the capital city Ankara, Ephesus was a magnificent city, 200,000 people. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of them was in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis, you remember? The Romans, of course, had conquered all this part of the world, and they controlled Ephesus as well. If one wanted to get to Colossae from Ephesus, one could go up the Meander River for a 100 miles, at which point you'd find another river flowing into it called the Lycus, if you followed the Lycus for another 40 miles, you would come to Colossae. An easier way, of course, was to go by road. There was a very important road that began at the port city of Ephesus and went due east, Laodicea, Colossae, to Paul's hometown of Tarsus, across to Antioch, where people were called Christian for the first time, all the way to the ancient territories known as Mesopotamia, the land between or in the middle of the Potamus we have, or, or from potable in water, the rivers, Tigris, Euphrates. So it was an important road. Colossae lay on that road. And yet it was not one of the biggest, most powerful cities. Paul never visited there as far as we know. <coughs> the church there was founded by Epaphras. He said to this group of heathen, pagan, polytheists, having multiple gods, there's only one God, and this God has made himself known to us clearer than any other time before in a person named Jesus of Nazareth, whom we know to be the Christos, the Messiah. We know him as Lord and Savior. After Epaphras moved on to help establish other churches, detractors came in and tried to lead the people astray, leading them either back to the old pagan gods and goddesses of fertility, or sometimes it was the Jewish community who said, you Gentiles are getting a free ride into the grace of God doing nothing. No, you men have to be circumcised and all of you have to eat kosher and so on. So the church was, was floundering and this letter was written to them. Four things today. Number one, 
the author reminds them that once you were far off, once you were hostile in mind and evil in your deeds, whenever we are separated from the one true God, when we no longer seek the will and purposes of that God, we're in serious trouble. I subscribe to six different magazines and I read two newspapers every day. It's been difficult recently to pick up any newspaper or magazine without having at least one feature story about the country of Iran. Uh, the recent elections over there, the protest against those elections, continuing protest and suppression of those who believe the elections were not fairly carried out. Or, what about the Israel? What are they going to do about the Iranians getting closer and closer to having nuclear weapons? Uh, the Israelis do not intend to let that happen. And our Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, says we're not going to allow that either. How are we going to stop it? That's the question. Now, this ancient country of Iran, known in biblical times as Persia, Persia, there was a book written a thousand years ago by a fellow named Ferdowsi. Ferdowsi wrote a book called the Shahnameh, translated the Book of Kings. And even a thousand years ago, Ferdowsi was pretty sure that Persia had seen its best days. In his book, he goes all the way back to what we know as biblical times. Remember what had happened to the 12 tribes of Israel? The 10 northern ones had been defeated plundered and absorbed by the Assyrians. 150 years later, a power farther to the east, modern-day Iraq, biblical times called Babylon, rose to greater power than Assyria and swept southward, conquered the two remaining tribes of Israelites, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned the gates, tumbled down the walls, ransacked the Solomon's magnificent temple and the palace and took everything of value with them, force marched the people all the way to Babylon. They were enslaved, exiled there for 50 years until a newer, stronger power rose up farther east, modern-day Iran, in ancient times known as Persia. They had great kings, Cyrus and Darius, who swept across Babylon and said to the Israelites, Go home. Plant your wheat fields again. Reactivate all of your vineyards. Uh, grow olives and pay taxes to Persia. But you can be free. Go home. Pay taxes to Persia. The Persians were confronted by the Greeks and Alexander the Great. There were several really notable wars between the Greeks and the Persians. But when Ferdowsi wrote a thousand years ago, it was already 1,600 years after those glorious days of Persia, and he was pretty sure the best of Persia was behind. He wrote in his book a thousand years ago, when we were good, we were strong, and when we were bad, we grew weak. How many American leaders have said to us, America is great because she is good. And if she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And each one of us can answer that question basically for herself, himself. Are you good? Or are you not good? Are you really dedicated to the purposes of God or not? 
Number two, in the passage today, this author says then, once you were hostile to the purposes of God, you were not good people, you were heathen, you were pagan, but you have been brought near through this one who makes the invisible God visible for you. The word translated image here for you is the word icon, icon in Greek. If you've ever been into an Eastern Orthodox church, you've seen icons, beautiful icons. To be an Eastern Orthodox church, uh, a congregation must have at least six icons. You may have more, you must have at least six. The Holy Mother, Jesus, and the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So usually, three on one side, three on the other side of the principal altar in Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, these are not intended to be uh, photographs of Mary, Jesus, and the four evangelists, but rather to convey a deep and inward beauty and compassion of God present in the lives of these six people of Mary who was chosen by God to birth his son, of Jesus who remained faithful to God all of his life, right to the moment of death, faithful all the way, and of the four evangelists who wrote that story for us so that 2,000 years later we know this story and believe with all of our hearts that it's true. Okay? This is the word, the image, this God of the Jews, uh, whom they say no one has ever seen, God has now made visible to us an icon of himself, an image of himself in Jesus of, of Nazareth. And he goes on to say, all the fullness of God was somehow present in him. That which God really was, was truly present in Jesus. I meant to ask Dr. Pensera about this when I read this story recently about an abbey in Pennsylvania, because Dr. Joel Pensera is the native of Pennsylvania. There's an abbey in Pennsylvania that received uh, a letter from a Roman Catholic priest in India saying that he was coming on vacation to the United States, but he would like for a part of his vacation to be a time of, of, of quiet and of prayer and wondered if he could spend significant time at the abbey. Permission granted. When he arrived at the abbey, though he spent large blocks of time alone and being quiet, at meal times and others, the priest there came to like him very much. He was warm and personable and gracious. And so one day they asked him, would he say the evening Mass for them? And he said he would be honored. Now the Roman Catholic Mass is similar enough all over the world that as this priest from India began the Mass, everyone was following along with no problem. There are always prayers of confession. There are assurances that if one is truly repented and sought to be turned and sent in a better direction, that has been granted. Forgiveness granted, new direction granted. Everything was going fine till they came right down to the prayer of consecration. I will read that prayer for you later this evening here in the sanctuary. That's the part that begins on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. Having given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the prayer of consecration. Just as this priest from India 
was ready for the prayer of consecration, he stepped back from the altar, bent down, and took off his shoes. And then stepped up to the altar again, barefooted. No one missed the importance of what he was saying. The God of Israel, who appeared to Moses in a burning bush, so vividly so that Moses took off his shoes knowing he was standing on holy ground. This priest is saying, that God who met Moses in the burning bush and sent him back to Egypt and visited plague upon plague upon Pharaoh until he let God's people go free. That God who led them 40 years in the desert, helping them become a community of faith, giving them the Ten Commandments. That one, whom no one had ever seen, has chosen to reveal himself in Mary's child, Jesus. Same God, just as real, truly present. When I say those words later this afternoon, Dr. Susan Pansera will sound a chime high up in the ceiling of the sanctuary. It's a reminder that we believe the God of the burning bush was present in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ, crucified but raised, has just come to the table and invites you to come and join him. Come and join him at the table. Okay. Number three, he has reconciled you, this invisible one who has now become visible in Jesus of Nazareth, has reconciled you, has set you right, has brought you back through his blood on the cross. Matt Fitzgerald is a minister up in Wellesley, Massachusetts. said that he grew up in a fairly small church. Didn't have the sacrament of Holy Communion often. But when they did, great preparations were made for the sacrament. He said we were served in the pews where we sat. Um, when, when the plate arrived, you could tell that someone had taken a loaf of bread, white bread, he said, and it looked like they had marked it off with a ruler and cut very carefully little maybe half-inch squares, cubes, cubes, all of them exactly the same. The grape juice, he said, came in little sterling silver tumblers. He said, I always thought of one of my mother's thimbles. That's what it looked like. A little tiny sterling silver thimble filled with grape juice. On special occasions, he said, like Easter and Christmas Eve, the ushers came to church in tuxedos and passed these trays up and down the pew. But as I look back on it, he said, it was awfully sterile. I don't remember anyone really talking about flesh blood. So later I felt called to be a minister and I went through college and then my three years of graduate school and I was ordained and sent to my first little church. And I was told that people there were accustomed to coming to the altar for communion. We would use a whole loaf of bread. That the minister was to tear it into halves and then the halves were moved along the rail and he said, the first Sunday, I couldn't believe how these people grabbed at this bread and tore off hunks of it and soused it down into the wine. 
But as they chewed vigorously on this piece of bread, and sometimes a little bit of wine would run down the corner of their mouths, I think they understood better about flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. Of how big a price was paid to show that sin is really serious. It's a horrible thing. It revisits every person. It revisits every family. It revisits every church. It revisits every nation. Will we be selfish? Will we be self-serving? Will we be unselfish and other-serving? Will God be the center and focus of our lives? Will we truly put the well-being of another above our own? Will we put ourselves out for the well-being of another? God did. God continues to put himself out for your well-being. That every child of his into whom he's breathed the breath of life, he wants to come home to him. Every little girl, every little boy, every man and woman come home to God. Finally come home to God. That every time we baptize one, every time we confirm one, we are praying that God is whispering to this person, I know you. You're my daughter. You're my son. I'm so glad you've come home to me. Number four, this author says, I, I pray that one day you will be presented. That's an interesting word in Greek, this word presented. The word is used in two different ways in classical Greek. It's used about sacrifices. Okay. Uh, some of you have been to Greece. Perhaps you've been up to Delphi. Gail and I have been up there. Our boys have been up there with us. Uh, we were told about the woman who was the oracle of Delphi, that there were so many people who thought she could project herself into the future, project, project them into the future. She could tell them what was going to befall them, bad things, good things, that they brought sacrifice. Uh, at first, these sacrifices were offered up. You know that usually it was just the not-so-desirable parts that were really burned away. And the rest of the flesh was sort of nicely barbecued, and the people who came got to enjoy. But this woman was making big-time money with all these sacrifices. Finally got to a point she just couldn't offer up enough sacrifices in any one day. And so the animals that were inspected at the bottom of the mountain and sold to people because they were without blemish, without spot, all right for sacrifice, were marched up the mountain and then marched down the opposite side and taken around and resold and marched down and resold and marched down. That's the word here, presented as a sacrifice, without blemish, without spot. But it's also a word used in classical Greek for being presented before a judge. When one is marched into a courtroom, and some can tell all the reasons why they believe this person is guilty, and someone else can give reasons why they believe he or she is innocent. And finally, the judge makes a determination. That's the word. I keep hoping, praying, 
that one day I may present you, he says, present you without blemish, without spot, blameless, irreproachable. And I believe I shall if you remain steadfast in the faith. If you keep on believing that what you were taught is right and you keep living it even when it doesn't seem to be getting the results you'd hoped for. Matt Fitzgerald says that he and his wife went to Chicago and they were seeing a big museum there. And a part of this museum was a history of war, a history of weapons of war. And he said, as we walked along seeing all these beautifully polished weapons of war, there seemed for every mace there was a helmet, for every dagger there was a breastplate, for every spear there was a shield. But you just knew that always the weapon came first and then somebody had to figure out a defense against the weapon. And so the weapons became more and more and more sophisticated and the efforts to keep the weapons from doing their harm became more and more sophisticated. But always there was one more weapon, one more weapon. Recently, I was talking with my grandsons about a movie that came out last winter about Ernie Davis. Ernie Davis, who played for one of our Methodist universities, Syracuse. It's a Methodist university. Uh, a great African-American athlete. The first one who would win the Heisman Trophy. First African-American to win the Heisman. And the Syracuse team was invited to come and play in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas. My birthday is January 2nd. My father worked in the oil fields all of my growing up years, and there was always some tool pusher that had a couple of tickets to the cotton bowl that he was glad to give to my dad, hoping the company my dad worked for would use them to drill the next well or to use Slumberjay or Dow Well or whatever it was. And so year after year, I got to go to the cotton bowl, and I was there. I was there the year Syracuse played the University of Texas. Ernie Davis was black, and black athletes weren't allowed to stay in white hotels in Dallas. And there were reports that some of the Longhorns, every time they got him down under the pile, they were punching, punching, punching. And just at halftime, when the halftime uh, gun sounded, both benches cleared and uh, went at each other in the middle of the field. I was trying to explain to my grandsons what that was like what that was like. I remember those days. When I was in seminary at SMU in Dallas, we had one African-American student who was in our seminary singers, Hector Grant. I remember Hector really well. We went on spring tour. We were singing the seven last words of Christ, Dr. Lloyd Fouch's arrangement, in churches all around Texas. We got to Houston, went in one of the most famous cafeterias down there. I mean, this was a gourmet kind of cafeteria, if that's not an oxymoron. It was really nice. And as we started in the door, someone stepped right in front of Hector and said, We don't serve colored. And all the rest of us said, but if you don't serve Hector, you don't serve us either. And we got back on the bus. And our choir director had to buy sandwich stuff at a supermarket, and we had to pull over at a roadside park and eat sandwiches together. I remember that. Some of you remember that. Okay. There was a famous picture back at that time 
A photographer took it for Life magazine, a lunch counter in Nashville, Tennessee. A white man, a white woman, husband, wife, an African-American woman. And the three of them went into this restaurant in Nashville to sit at the lunch counter in an attempt to say black people ought to get to eat where white people eat. This photograph was shown all over the world. The three who sat down to eat were immediately attacked by the white people there. These three did not lift a hand against that mob. In fact, their hands were on the counter, almost prayer-like. But the mob, you could see the hatred in their eyes. Someone had grabbed one of the ketchup dispensers and was squeezing it all over the man's head and shoulders. Another had grabbed the mustard and was squeezing it all over the black woman's head. Another had grabbed the sugar dispenser and was just pouring it out on the white woman's head. You could see the hatred in the people's eyes. But there was one young man, one who probably came in thinking, when they stand up to fight, I'm fighting. But they didn't stand up and fight. They sat and let these people pour ketchup and mustard and sugar all over their heads. And you could see this young man with his head down, looking embarrassed, hurt, knowing he had made a big mistake. And that sooner or later, God's weapons of grace and mercy and nonviolence will win. Amen.